It's 1954. In the midst of a Cold War, President David O. McKay envisions church growth internationally. But a worldwide church will require bringing temples to the saints. President McKay has authorized the first temple outside of North America in Switzerland. He now turns to church employee Gordon Hinckley to help solve the problem of presenting the endowment in multiple European languages. This fascinating story is next in Chapter 38, More Power, More Light. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Joining us today is Virginia Pierce Cowley, an author and former member of the Young Women General Presidency. And we also have with us Christian Uvrad, a sociologist and historian of European church history. Thank you both so much for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Our pleasure. Happy to be with you. Well, let's help our readers understand a little bit more about yourselves. I wonder, Virginia, we have some wonderful scenes in this chapter with regards to Gordon B. Hinckley. Could you tell us more about your work and connection to him? Oh, my connection to him is the easiest part. He's my father. And connection to my work, I'm not sure that he isn't all the way through everything I've ever done. (laughs) But I'm delighted to be able to participate in this chapter because of him. And Christian, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to the church and its history? Certainly. I had the pleasure of being baptized in 1965, last century. My (laughs) brother had joined a few years before myself, and we were just two young men without the rest of the family or parents joining the church. And we we have the feeling that we were somewhat raised by the church also, although we had a wonderful mother, of course. And so we had the many opportunities to, to grow, to learn, and to serve. And, and that has been just a marvelous time since that first day. Thank you. It's so wonderful to have both of you on the podcast today. Well, let's jump right into the chapter. And Christian, we are continuing to read about Jeanne Charrier and her attempts to live and share the gospel as a new member in Valence, France. What does it mean to you to have French church history represented in the volume? It's uh, really uh, such a blessing because France has a rich heritage uh, in the church history. And when I say France, uh, I should mean the French mission, which includes the Swiss French-speaking, Swiss Romande, and the Belgian French-speaking members who for a long time were some of the strong areas of the church. But yes, it's very important. I think it will add a sense of identity and strength to the saints in this part of the world. I think it's quite important as well because we sometimes look at certain countries where perhaps it's taken the church longer to grow or perhaps hasn't had the rapid growth that other countries have perhaps had at times. And it sometimes can be forgotten. But the church in France has a rather long history. I wonder, could you just give us a brief overview of when the church was introduced to France? Sure. In 1850, John Taylor was sent by Brigham Young along with Curtis Bolton, John Pack, and uh, we should mention, of course, William Howells who was from Wales and had been sent by the British leaders of the church in 1849. So he was alone, although he came back for a little while with his young daughter, Anne, who was nine years old. 
probably one of the first, if not the first and youngest sister missionary who was with him. And they tried to bring members into the church, but basically limited their reach to the English-speaking people, so British, Americans, Canadians, and so on. But they were able to organize a first branch in Boulogne-sur-Mer in 1850. Then when John Taylor arrived, then the church started to grow. They went to Paris in September after the dedication of France to the preaching of the gospel. Then, of course, the mission was closed in 1864 and only reopened in 1912 for a very short period, as you can imagine, since World War I started in 1914, reopened by David McKay in 1923, and then, of course, closed again in 1940 and finally reopened in 1946, and ever since uh, stayed open. I think we see how wars and persecution have sometimes limited activities at particular times. Well, Christian, what state is the church in, in France and in Europe more generally at this point? Yeah, today in France, the whole country of France and the French-speaking Europe, Belgium and Switzerland, are covered with stakes. We don't have any more member districts. So 13 stakes, one in Brussels, Belgium, two in Switzerland, Lausanne and Geneva, and then the rest stakes are in France itself. I would say that the average age of the stake presence today that we have, the 13 of them, is probably something like 35 to 40 years old. So very young, very capable, written missionaries, married to temple, excellent people involved in society with great professional expertise. So the church is strong in that way. Now, I would like to say that the church in France is not a church only of French people. It's a church that is a mix of people coming from Africa, from Eastern Europe, from South America, and of course, United States as well, and all the islands of the sea. This is so amazing to hear, and I love understanding that now, having read about the beginnings. I think that's so neat. Christian, you've explained the nature of the saints in France and Europe in general at this time, but how does that compare to what we read about in the chapter? Well, in those days, you know, we're only 10 years after the end of World War II, and so it's a very different situation. The membership is about 800 people, and that means probably about 70 to 80 people in France itself, the rest being in Switzerland and Belgium. So it's really a new beginning. Well, thank you for that, Christian. And in the volume, we read about Madame Viviere, who, like Jean, is facing opposition. Family are trying to prevent her from joining the church. I wonder if you could tell us about what are the challenges these early members faced in the 1950s as the church was beginning? Could you just tell us a little bit more about the kind of experiences that they would have had? First of all, they are very typical because they are women, and a great number of the converts are women at the time in the church in France, and often single women, widows or with a husband, but the husband would not join. So it's true that it's difficult that way. When people were converted, there was the fact that some emigrated also. So all of that was seen as a rejection of the traditions of the French and the French culture. Well, perhaps I could add to what you've said here for just a moment, Christian, because Jean Charrier's story is a fascinating one. And I can just say a little bit about how she was chosen 
in the book. And Christian, last year, you and I talked about French church history, and we really wanted to get as many of the characters in the book as we could to the Swiss temple dedication, which is obviously in the next chapter. It's how we're going to conclude the book. And we had, I think if I remember correctly, there were nine Latter-day Saints from France who were endowed in the temple on the day of the dedication. Now, most of them had been born in the 19th century. They were long dead. There was no one who we could really go to seeking information. And then we found Jean Charrier, who's passed away only just a few years ago. She never married. She never had any children. But then speaking to her local leaders, we found that her family had burned many of her papers. A lot of her records had been destroyed because her family was still very antagonistic towards the church. It was a rather sad story. But her voice, her experiences as a Latter-day Saint, and she was incredibly faithful, were at risk. They were, they were almost going to be lost because the people who knew her obviously are getting older as well, which is when we came across some members and some missionaries who over the years have interviewed her. There was one missionary who served there in the 1950s when she was a new member, and he had called her many times over the years and typed up her story and preserved records, kept photographs of her. And many of the records that we used to write her story in Saints we're only able to do it on account of this missionary who had been so committed to preserving her story. That's really uh, reassuring because it could have been lost. You know, when you don't have children, then a lot of things get lost. Well, there was another great little experience. And, and this, for me, just shows the hand of the Lord in the process here. When I was living in Utah the other year, as I was working away, trying to find people who may have known her in the 1950s, which is a bit of a push today to find people who knew her then, I discovered that one of the missionaries that had served there, a sister missionary, had just passed away just recently. But her house was just around the corner from where I lived. And I went and knocked on the family's door and they loaned me her journal, which contained some amazing accounts of Jean Charrier greeting them. And we were able to use some of that material. So this is just one of the many, many ways that the hand of the Lord has been over the history of both the church, but more importantly, the people the, of the saints themselves. Absolutely. Well, and that's how we connect to the story and the book by hearing the perspectives of these individuals that have such varied experiences around the world. So James, I love that you were able to share how we found out more about her and got that information and how it was preserved. That's amazing. Before we move on, I do have one other question for you, Christian, which might be useful. And Virginia, this might be a good bridge point to you as well. So feel free to chip in here if you'd like to as well. Could you tell us why Switzerland was chosen out of the various countries as the place to have the first temple in Europe? So reading biographies of Davido Mackay, of course, you learn a lot about this choice. When President Mackay came in his world tour in 1921-22, the purpose was to get a feeling for the members of the church throughout the world and to be able to give information to the brethren in Salt Lake City. When you read the reports that he wrote after this trip, one of the things was, of course, to bring to the members in the world outside the United States 
states, what members in the U.S. had. Then he was European president in Europe just before Brother Whitsell. And that, I think, confirmed his conviction. And of course, in 1951, when he became the president of the church, he was able to finally, I think, put into place what he had envisioned, a really international church, not just a church that had members in different countries speaking different languages, but a church that would be international in its presence, in its uh, approach and message. And one of the things, of course, was to bring the blessings of the temple. So having a temple was a decision that was made in 1952, as I recall, by David Noaquet after his trip in Europe. And Switzerland, of course, center of Europe. I'm talking about the Western Europe at the time. It's a neutral country. And of course, the world wars have shown how important that was. It's also a country where already people speak different languages, French, Italian, German, and others. And also, at the same time, train lines were connected with Geneva, with Zurich, with Bern, and the freeway highways. In terms of connection, it was also easy. And then you could find in that area a lot of people that could help in translation, in serving, in being temple servants and so on. So I think all of these aspects were taken into consideration for the choice of Switzerland. Thank you so much for giving us that additional context. I think that's the perfect transition to this next part of the chapter that we want to talk about too with Gordon B. Hinckley. And Virginia, we're so lucky to have you here today to hear from your very personal connection about your perspective on this chapter. And Gordon B. Hinckley is another one of those characters who, when he's introduced in the book, I think a lot of people are just going to naturally kind of perk up and just feel this attachment for him because I do feel close to him. He was the prophet for so much of my life, and I just loved reading these very fascinating scenes with him in this chapter. One of the scenes has to do with the Temple film. And Virginia, there will be listeners who have attended the temple and have only ever known an instructional film in the temple. And this idea of temple workers performing the instruction might seem unusual for some. Can you tell us a little bit more about this radical new approach to temple instruction and what it meant for the church? I'd love to. I think it's always interesting to see how the Lord orchestrates these things that all happen at the right time. When I listen to Christian talking about post-war Europe and the needs of people there and the inability of them to gather to Zion in Salt Lake City, all of those kinds of things and President McKay's absolute drive to bring the church to the world. After he goes on that world tour in the 20s, he's driven to do that. So he comes on the scene with that always as part of his agenda in terms of missionary work and now temple work. So in 1953, ground was broken for the temple in Solokofen, Switzerland. And it would be the first temple outside of Canada and the United States. So here we are. We're in the middle of Europe with all of these languages that you're talking about. And we have a temple ceremony that is a live drama. Temple workers memorize words, and the entire endowment was given at that time as temple workers talked it. So President McKay came to my father in the fall. I think the ground was broken for the temple in August. And here's President McKay breaking ground for a temple, not knowing exactly how they're going to do this. Because you don't have an army of people that can speak French and that are endowed. You know, you just can't do it. 
So he called my father into his office. And I think it's important, at least it is for me, to recognize how young Gordon B. Hinckley was. He was a 43-year-old man, an employee of the church. He was not a general authority. He was an employee. He was employed in the missionary department. He had had a lot of audiovisual experience. There was no audiovisual department when he arrived at church headquarters and went to work in 1935. So he began making film strips for missionaries. So he was familiar with audiovisual as a way to spread the gospel in terms of missionary work. So President McKay came to him and he handed him this conundrum. We need to be able to present the temple ordinances without live actors because we've got to do it in many, many languages. So I'm not sure whether he said film at that point or whether he just said find a way. I can't tell in any of the journals. But on the other hand, going back to him, we've got a 43-year-old man who's a church employee. He's in the state presidency. He's in charge of the missionary department at the employee level. He has four children. I was eight. My brother was six. And my mother would have a baby the next year. So there would be five of us by the time he finished the film, but a birth takes place in the middle of that. So you can see in the chaos of that kind of life, what he's being asked to do on top of his other responsibilities. So he goes to work and in order to give him some peace and quiet, they give him the Talmadge room in the Salt Lake Temple to do his work in. And that to me is most sacred. 40 years later, when our family went through the temple on a session, and my father took us up to the fifth floor and sat us all down and talked to us about what had happened there in 1953 and 54. And he just went over and over and over the endowment. You can't take it out of the temple in the first place. So he would go over at nights and most Saturdays. We just knew that he was gone. And my mother knew he was working on a temple project. And we knew he was working on a temple project. But when you're 10 years old, what do you care? (laughs) So he would go in there and he would spend just week after week going over the temple endowment ceremony. And very often, President McKay would come in and join him on Sunday mornings. And we were aware of that because he was gone on some Sundays and he said, I'm meeting with President McKay in the temple. So can you imagine that experience? of having the prophet sit at your elbow and being able to work through that most sacred material that we have. I can't even describe what I think that kind of tutoring must have been. So I look at that and I think, oh, not only does the Lord figure out how to get the temple to all the saints in Europe and then beyond that, because that's when it explodes in terms of languages, but he knows how to do it in a way that he is tutoring somebody who will become the prophet. It's all happening at the same time, and certainly nothing that any mortal could figure out. So when he finally made the recommendation that they put it on film, then he went to work, and it was horrific in terms of the pressure. He was gone all the time. And he took us up to the fifth floor, and he showed us where they filmed it, and that's that huge room. It's several stories high. It has priesthood pulpits at both ends. And because they couldn't let anybody know what was happening and they could only have endowed members there, they took out the windows and with cranes put in the equipment. They put in new electrical things so that they could handle the electricity. In fact, he said one night they blew out all the lights in the temple and there were people in the temple. (laughs) So it was a little panic. So he had a team of people. He had two people from KSL, Joe Shaw 
in Evans. And he had a woman named Winifred Bowers who did the costuming. And she kind of became a household name for us. She was very bright and really good at what she did. And then he had Harold Hansen, who ran the pageants. Right now, we have at the top of every field endowed members, every field. You can get an expert in this church in anything you want to get an expert in. But in those days, we didn't have the population to have an army of experts. So he gathered what he could, and they worked night and day and ended up producing a film And all the time they were taking it to the First Presidency and they were getting coached back and forth. And when they had something they thought would be okay and they were pleased with, then they had to re-film it in different languages with different actors. I mean, (laughs) this is just so cumbersome compared to what we do now. But the dedication and the importance of this is impossible to even imagine because it opens the door for members all over the church to make those sacred covenants and to do that for their progenitors. I can't imagine what it was like for those European saints who'd lost so many people so recently, 10 years before in that war, to know that they were sealed to them forever. It's a phenomenal chapter in our history, I believe. Personally, for me, to see my father just do what it took. He would sleep up there. Sometimes he would just lie down on the priesthood benches and sleep for a few hours and get up and work again because he still had his work at the office to do. He'd just take a clean shirt and go back to the office during the day. And my mother never, ever, there was never anything about it that wasn't good as far as she was concerned. Good times. Well, and I think, Virginia, like you mentioned, this incredible opportunity for the saints to receive these blessings of being sealed to their families. That probably was the thing that kept your mom and dad going and why they were able to do this. When I was reading the chapter, I felt so stressed out. (laughs) It was just such a massive (laughs) task. And compared to, like you said, I mean, this was almost 70 years ago. So the processes of how we would accomplish that now, it's hardly anything compared to what he had to go through. I was so amazed by the parts in the chapter that were so inspiring. Like you mentioned, he was able to be tutored by the prophet and he had all of these opportunities to understand what he was doing. And I think that's so incredible. I'll tell you, as a child, one of the biggest memories was him trying to get the films to Europe without them being seen or heard by the customs. And I remember him saying, I've decided to ask Alexander Schreiner to play the most cacophonous, horrible, dissonant organ music. I think he had him take 10 or 15 minutes at the beginning of the sound strip. He said, I'm hoping to discourage. (laughs) Because honestly, can you imagine the responsibility of keeping that script sacred? He had two canisters that he took over with the sound. When they landed in Basel, the customs officer said, what are those? And he said, they're instructional films for our church. And he said, well, we can't let them go through without sending them into the customs people in Bern to listen to Bern, Basel. I can't remember which one anyway. And it was a Saturday at noon. And he said, I was scared. They had masking tape around him, but he was scared to give them to him. But he was afraid not to. Didn't want to make a big fuss. So President Pershon was with him. He was the mission president in Switzerland. They gave him to them. And the next day was fast day. They fasted all day because they couldn't get him back until Monday. And when they got him back, 
They had not listened to him. They had started to listen to him and heard the music. And they said, oh, <laughs> oh, and retaped him up. And one of the cute things is that that was so panicky for my dad that he took that tape and he had it in two little balls, just the wadded up masking tape. And he kept them on his dresser for years, those two little balls of tape, just remembering the miracle. Well, thank you for that, Virginia. It's great to get that additional perspective. And I think it's important, and you mentioned this, at this point, your father is an employee of the church. And so he isn't a senior church leader in his own right yet. I think many of our readers will know of him in that capacity. But this is a lot of responsibility for someone, as you said, in his 40s, trying to keep what we consider to be some of the most sacred things on this earth trying to protect them and, and keep them safe. I was the same, Shailen. It's a stressful, <laughs> stressful <laughs> scene. I can imagine the stress and the sacrifice. The funny thing was is that in preparing for this, I went through the letters my mother sent to us because she went over the dedication with him. And she's describing that they took the film, so they had to wait till Monday to get them back. And she says, but we're not at all worried. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking that's the difference between my mother and my father. My mother was sure that the Lord would take care of this, and my dad was praying his heart out. <laughs> that's fantastic. And I think this story will interest readers, not just because of the significance for the church in terms of the temple, not just because of Gordon B. Hinckley and his role in it, but because of the different elements of the story that show the hand of the Lord in guiding the church and in guiding its leaders and members to fulfill the Lord's purposes. Now, I did want to ask you, Virginia, we have this mention of Winifred Bowers, who you referred to before, where your father is reaching out to her for, for help and advice. And I wonder if you could help readers understand a little bit more about your father. Is this something that he did often in terms of asking other people for help or for advice? If I had to say two or three characteristics of my father approach over his lifetime in every setting, one of them would be his absolute constant gathering in knowledge, asking people, quizzing people, and then assimilating that knowledge into what he does. I've never seen anybody that is such a learner in my life. Somebody picks you up at an airport in a car, and on the way to the hotel, he's asking this man questions about his life. He would come home on a plane, and the next day he'd say to us, oh, I sat by a man on the plane who's the world's cucumber expert, and he's telling me all about cucumbers, and he's interested in it. So when you say reaching out to Winifred Bowers or to anybody else with any kind of expertise, that's what he did. He was a learner. Well, Virginia, we're just wondering, can you give us any other insights into this chapter and what these experiences meant to your father? I think as a child, if you want to know what it's like and why it was formative for us, this experience particularly and others too, I never heard him feeling like he was overburdened, that he was being asked to do too much. We knew he was tired. We knew he was working hard, but it was always with this energetic for the kingdom feeling. And I think all of us as children inherited that. We didn't ever see church work as a burden or difficulty. We never got the sense that this is too much, that God is asking too much. It was always 
total focus and dedication and it was just faith-filled. That's such an incredible lesson. Now, Christian, the Swiss temple wasn't particularly old when you joined the church, maybe 10 years or so in operation. I wonder if you could tell us about the significance of the Swiss temple to European members and the ways in which they viewed the temple in those mid-1960s years onwards. Yes, certainly. The Swiss temple for many years was the only continental European temple. And so it was seen almost as a pilgrimage for members. Uh, In fact, often families would go during the summer on part of their vacation. They would bring tents and find a campground in the area and spend several days, a week or so. You would rarely go for one day and then go home. Uh, You would spend a lot of days and you would spend the whole day at the temple do as many sessions as possible. Those sessions were very long because the way that the Swiss temple was designed, the first version, before the remodeling, you had one room for the endowment, you had the room itself on the floor, and then you had two balconies on the sides. And that was about 400 people. And you can imagine a session with 400 people in the summer. Uh, (laughs) It often took four hours of session to go through the whole thing. And that was a great experience. But members would bring their children, even though they often could not get in the temple, but they could see their parents going. The parents would trade to keep take care of the children while the others would be in the temple and so on. So it became a great family value, a center for the family life. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. I wonder if the two of you, however, as we finish this episode, might be able to tell us what you hope readers will take away from the stories in this chapter. I love the title of this chapter. And I think what I would want people to feel after they read this chapter is just the incredible amount of light and power we get through temples and that God is willing to move that forward all over the world so that we can be endowed with power and light. Yes. To me, it's also the symbol of the spirit of Zion. Like you mentioned, 10 years earlier, these people were enemies. They were fighting against each other. And all of a sudden, there was such a great reconciliation in the spirit of the gospel. We are brothers and sisters and not at all enemies. And that gave the hope for the future of a possibility of a different type of life. And I think that's the message that we need today, probably more than any other time. Well, thank you so much. I've especially appreciated the personal connections and insights that the two of you have brought today. I think that's really valuable. It's been valuable to me, and I think our listeners will appreciate that as well. So Virginia and Christian, thank you so much for being on this episode today. Thank you for allowing us to. Yes, thank you. It's a great privilege. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you. Thank you.